Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. She can dance, she can act, whether it be comedy, drama or killing zombies. This woman is a bombshell performer. Born and raised in Los Angeles, a classically trained ballerina, Jenna began her career as a professional dancer, appearing in music videos by Depeche Mode, Anthrax and others. She danced in the 1991 Academy Awards live broadcast, which is basically the biggest gig a dancer can get in LA. She transitioned to acting and became best known for her role as Dharma in the hit series Dharma and Greg, for which she garnered a Golden Globe Award, three Emmy Award nominations and two TV Guide Awards. Jen is currently starring in the hit series Fear the Walking Dead. She joined the series in season four, quickly becoming a fan favourite as the character June, aka Naomi and Laura. Jen is currently blowing minds with her performances this season which is season six. Film credits include Friends with Benefits, Barry, Keeping the Faith with Ben Stiller and Edward Norton, Ed TV, directed by Ron Howard, Can't Hardly Wait, Big Stone Gap and many more. In TV, a long list of credits including Imaginary Mary, Growing Up Fisher, 1600 Pen, Shameless, Damages with Glenn Close, The Mindy Project, Two and a Half Men, I don't need to tell you who that was with. My name is Earl, Royal Pains, The Twilight Zone, and the list goes on. Jenna and her husband, Bodie, blaze the podcast trail with their video podcast, Kicking and Screaming, where they humorously discuss their more than 25-year marriage. is definitely worth checking out. A phenomenal talent with a heart of gold. Gives me a real pleasure to welcome to the blank canvas, Jenna Elfman. What a delight it is to see your lovely face this morning. Lee, same. I wish I could hug you and squeeze you and tackle you guys. And boy, that time will come soon. I look forward to it. You know, as I was preparing for this, so many memories flooded back of so many times we've shared together over the years. I'll try and not get too personal because we are sharing this conversation with the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I won't tell them about that moly. I swear to God. I just, I won't mention it. I so I'll just keep it to myself. Thank God for that. The first time I heard your name and saw your face was bizarrely, and I'd actually forgotten this for many years, but I'd written a movie script called Godspeed. And there was a supporting Californian female role in it. And I'd sent the script to a casting director who I'd met years before named Sharice Glenn, who lived in LA, a top casting director. I don't know whether she'd done a lot of movies. She'd done a lot of commercials and other things, but really switched on casting director. Anyway, she saw everyone. She saw about 50 people. And there was some big names in there. I won't name drop now, but there was some big names. And there was a name that I'd never heard of. And it was your name. And you totally blew me away out of everyone. The cream definitely rose to the top and you were the right person for the gig. I'd never heard of you. I'm very excited going, my God, this girl, it's so quirky. Her choices are so unusual. She's 
great with the comedy. She's great with the dramatic element. I'm so excited. I want to make this movie. Anyway, I show the casting tape to my wife and she goes, that's the girl I've been telling you about. I met her at a, at a, at a pool party or something when I was in LA recording that last record. And I went, oh, my God, because she had told me about this girl, but I had totally ignored her because I thought, oh, yeah, what's the chance of her finding the right person at a pool party and becoming friends with her six months earlier? So, <laughs> that's the first time. Plus, it's coming from the wife, so it's got to be like, nah. <laughs> exactly. but is it- <laughs> The automatic, like, husband refusal, you uh, know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> so that was incredible and then I am going on a bit of a rant here I will let you talk shortly but I just thought I'd set oh, the please. To, <laughs> I thought I'd set the scene and then I wrote the male role for Simon Baker who had just come off a, a soap called E Street and there was a supporting male role the antagonist that was written for Ben Mendelsohn so you know, little did I know I had this extraordinary cast and the cinematographer I had on board was Andrew Lesney, who went on to win oh an God. Academy Award for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, who was shooting my commercials and music videos at the time. So, sadly, I didn't raise the money for the movie and it never got made and it's in that, you know, in that drawer with that story of the one that got away. But <laughs> anyway, the good part of the story is a few years later, Kate, my wife and I, I mean, I know you know this story, but it's nice to rehabilitate the story and the memory, isn't it? Um, we moved to LA a few years later and you and Kate had struck up a friendship. One thing led to another. We're then living in the basement of your house. If you move into your <laughs> new house in the Hollywood Hills at the height of your Emmy nominated Golden Globe winning, you know, Supernova series, Dharma and Greg. So it was this incredibly exciting time. And um, thank you for inviting us into your world. And there you go. That's my <laughs> of rant. Course. And, and, and I'd prefer to refer to it as the lower level of the house, not really the basement. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a door. Let's just talk about the fact that you guys had no door. You know, there was stairs and I think we hung some fabric like the true hippies that we are. Um, it was the most happy period of time. And I just remember like what I would give for that now to just have you and Kate, like when we always talk about this, didn't we? We always dream about like, if we could just have like a huge property and a, like a compound or something, you know, with like, or, or, um, I hate that word compound sounds weird. Like, uh, I don't know, just like a community of homes on a bunch of acreage where we could all like go hang out and then go back to our own spaces, but, you know, have our morning tea or, you know, I just remember Kate like making this like the most perfect tea and everything that comes from Kate is perfect. And um, it was some of the most happiest, warmest memories. And you guys were so lovely and such good house guests and you are such good friends. And I remember one time I had a really hard day at work like a really hard day. It was just one of like those, you know, someone does something that just kind of was unexpected and it was upsetting, whatever. And I remember it hit me pretty hard and I like couldn't stop crying. And Kate took such good care of me and just made a bubble bath and was just there for me. And I will never forget it. She's so good at TLC. And that's why, I mean, when she's like singing pop songs, I'm crying. Because the love that is in her heart 
explodes out of her. And I just remember that was just a really, really good time. And I miss it a lot. That's beautiful. Likewise, very special time. Now, Kate was already a star in Australia prior to being there, but it was a really interesting transition time for Kate because in a way she'd been a star since she was 15 and she wanted to get out of Australia for a little while. I guess it was kind of an early midlife crisis in a way or that transition Mm -hmm. from being the, the sexy pop star to transitioning to a more mature artist and not just chasing, you know, top 40 radio hits, being the soul singer that she is and and focusing more on writing and communicating her story, finding her voice, all of that stuff. So it was a really beautiful period for her. But what was really interesting, because I'd been with her, you know, before then, was being there with you as you were sort of going through your first phase in a way of superstardom. I can call it because it was, it was an absolute rocket ride and it was an incredible insight into the vortex of Hollywood stardom and the intensity of it, the pressures of it, the demands and and the work ethic that it takes. Like Kate was kind of, she's always had a lot of energy, but she wasn't as focused prior to having lived with you. I think she really learned a lot from having lived with you and saw how hard you worked. And, you know, we went to press conferences, we went to launches, we went to premieres, we did these things and she actually learned a lot from the way you handled it and it was very impressive because it's, you know, well, a lot of people don't survive that kind of success and um, it was actually a really, really valuable time for Kate and I see some of the lessons she learned at that time. She's kept mm. with her ever since and she is wow. she's a force to be reckoned with these days. Her work ethic is, inc- Clearly. Yeah, is, is incredible. <laughs> I mean, so I do marvel because, you know, you grew up in LA. I think you grew up in the Valley, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So you're the Valley girl, you know, with no industry connections. Your parents weren't in the business. You're a dancer. I think you danced at one of the Academy Awards, didn't you? I did in 1991, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Imagine how many dancers dream of kind of acting and making it in Hollywood. I'd have to say not a whole lot make it. So how the hell did you do that from being a professional dancer to making it not only as a comedic actor but a dramatic actor as well? There's many of these sort of moments in my life where I made these transitions. And um, one of the first one was from dance to acting and – Dancing on the Academy Awards at that time was like the best gig you could get in LA as a dancer. And um, it's once a year. <laughs> and I was, I dropped out of college to do that job because I couldn't, you know, attend my classes with the rehearsal schedule for dancing on the show. And I was like, I don't know if I can support myself this way. But it wasn't so much about money, it was about creating an, an emotional impact as an artist for what my goals were as an artist. And you know, it was so cool to dance on the Academy Awards. And it was so cool. You know, I danced in television and film. I got to work with Twyla Tharp on a Jim Brooks film. It was like, it, it was very cool things as a dancer. But yeah, I didn't have plans to go to New York, you know, and do Broadway as a dancer or anything. And it was kind of like the best gig. And I was like, oh, like I was sort of like, this is it. Like I hit the top kind of as a dancer um, at the time. And I was like, I don't know. You know, I was on stage. There was like 30 of us on stage. and not in a narcissistic way, but there's no like name recognition because you're a body performing, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, this is this dancer person with their like Misty Copeland, you know, who has her communication as an individual. It wasn't that for me. 
And I had real goals of wanting to make an impact on the world and on people and make them feel something directly as a result of my communication artistically. And I just didn't feel like I could accomplish that in that format for what my goals were. And I, I really wanted to be able to reach a lot of people as an individual. And that's when I was like, I feel like it's time to just start acting now. And, you know, I had been dancing in TV and film. So I was like, had been on sets and such. So it wasn't like I was going from like theater. And, um, and right at that time, I did a Sprite commercial where I met Bodhi, who's been my husband for 25, six years. I, I don't count anymore. It's 30 years together. And he was acting and I was like, oh, let me just start studying acting wherever you're going. And so I did commercials to pay my rent and made jewelry at home, brought it with me to acting class, sold the jewelry at acting class so that I could get gas to get home and, you know, mailed out my headshot and masked all the casting directors. Like I did all the things you do. You said, send out postcards. You, I did student films for uh, American Film Institute and the actor trade magazines with there's like USC student films casting. Cause I needed to get footage of me acting. Cause otherwise I had no reel. And, um, and so I just did all uh, the hard work and studied and did scene study and, um, tried not to get evicted from my apartment while trying to build it up. And I barely made it without being evicted and, and, um, by doing commercials. And then, you know, trying to get a theatrical agent was like a nightmare, um, because they want to see tape and they want something more cool than a student film. And, um, so then I, I would like wait in the agent offices that I was trying to get a meeting with, with flowers and wait for them in the lobby as they went out on their lunch break, hoping to catch them to go, Hey, did you get my headshot? Hey, I left you a message. <laughs> I was that really annoying person that didn't work. But the fact that I was putting out that energy and trying, and this is the big lesson always is if you put out that energy, even if you don't get a direct result from the thing you're directly putting the energy on, inevitably something comes around and opens up, you know, and comes in. So that opened the door to me going, oh, you know what? Maybe my commercial agent has actors that are with that. I found an agent I really wanted. And I was like, I'll have her call. He'll, he'll answer her call. And, um, and that's ultimately, Bodhi had read an article on this one agent. He's like, he sounds like he could be good for you. So I called him up and anyway, I was refused at first by the front desk person, et cetera finally got in there. And the second he said, yes, I haven't stopped working since. So it was one of those where it just took that one person to believe in you. I remember, was it when Lady Gaga was like campaigning for her Oscar in all of her interviews repeatedly, but it's true. She would say it just takes one person to believe in you. And um, she was talking about Bradley Cooper, giving her that opportunity. And, um, and it really was for me. Um, and so then I just started going out on auditions and booking jobs. And that was, um, Probably like right or, or no, maybe I'd had a, I'd gotten one gig, but maybe somewhere in that first year was probably when I auditioned for your film or something. I don't, I don't know exactly that year, but that's what I did. I just worked my ass off and a big thing. I don't mean to just drink my coffee and have one big run on sentence, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do want to say, and this pieces together, all those transitions on how I then accomplished the comedy and then accomplished drama, you know, more recently in terms of a career choice, I wrote down how I wanted it to look, what job I wanted to be. I wanted to do a TV comedy. I researched all the TV comedies that were on at the time. 
And then I like allowed myself a blue sky, like, okay, if I could just literally have a show be however I want it to be, what would that look like? And I wrote it all down. I wrote down like my dream. I didn't do like, well, that'll never happen. So don't put it down. I was like, no, uh, this is like my dream. Like if I could do anything and I am not kidding you, Dharma and Greg on Dharma and Greg, I basically accomplished all of those dreams on Dharma and Greg because my character got to do so many fun things from playing with animals as childlike as that is. That was something I wanted to do. We had horses, we had bears, like, you know, so then after I went through the comedy trajectory, and then it started getting a little bumpy because I was kind of I was accepting things where like the writing maybe wasn't totally there, but I was going, I'll make it work. But it was not, you know, and I had to learn some like lessons after Dharma and Greg. And I got to a point where I was like, I'm feeling really frustrated. And what is it? And I had to go back to what I did before and blue sky it and go, okay. So what am I craving to do? What's the inspiration point? Like what, what do I, if I could do anything right now, like regardless of if I think anyone will let me or accept it or hire me, like who gives a shit? Like, what is it that I want to do? And I just let myself have my blue sky dream. And I went, I'm a grown up now and I've lived a lot of life and I've had a lot of experiences and I'm craving expressing myself as a, an adult and as a mother and as a woman, not a girl, but a woman. And, and I'm also craving staying in the moment of expression where in comedy it's kinetic and there's a rhythm to it and you like hit it and you're bouncing and you're, you know, I wanted to stay and I wanted to communicate as a woman about the human condition. And I wanted to be able to express myself in that way. And I'm not kidding you. 10 days later, they called and offered me Fear the Walking Dead. And it had been rather bumpy leading up to that. And I, I separated from my manager, who was a lovely person, but just, I think, you know, he was just sort of seeing the comedy trajectory and I kept going, I feel like we need to turn the ship and it kind of wasn't happening. And I just felt like I needed to cleanse the palate a little bit as lovely and awesome as he was. I had to do that for myself and I'm a very loyal person. So that was a very difficult move to make. And that's when I kind of went, okay, what, what's the dream? And that's just what's worked for me every time was just to allow myself to dream. How, what is it? How do I want to express myself? What does that look like in my most pleasurable, happy view of it? And I get really straight on that. And then I do the actions. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing so many insights mm -hmm. in that story. It's incredible, the magic that is possible when you align your goals and your purposes and really name it, isn't it? Um, yeah. ov obviously, it's got, to, it's got to align with your skill set as well. But wow, that's an amazing story. I think the one thing was being clear in when you were talking about goals and purposes and having them like align. You know, my purpose was always to make people feel alive and to remind them that they are alive and they can think new thoughts and, and to kind of keep hope alive in people that they can always at any moment make a change for the better for themselves and to keep them inspired and feeling their aliveness. And that was always something with comedy. I wanted to just bring joy with drama. You know, I kind of want to like in creating that emotional impact on people and and having them feel things, they know they're alive, you know? And that was a purpose of mine. Yeah, that's that's great. Something I've noticed mm -hmm. with quite a few actors as they go through acting school, often 
the magic, the quirk, the spark, the individuality that they have is not there when they come out the other side. Do you have any advice for actors as to how you navigated that through your training? Uh, Through trial and error. I think you really have to be careful about teachers um, just invalidating and telling you exactly what to do and how to do it and invalidating the choices you did make in that scene or what have you. I think it's really destructive to the imagination. And if you don't have imagination, you've lost your artistry, you've lost your uniqueness, you've lost everything. And I think that people who get into a teaching position can get a little self-important if they weren't already that drove them to that position to sit in the chair and just tell you what you did wrong and how it can be better. And that makes them very elite. And um, I think that that's really dangerous. I think the the best scenario is more uh, of an approach of practice and drilling and where someone can direct your attention, but the choices are yours and you're not invalidated for the choices you make because you'll stop making choices if you get invalidated all the time, obviously. Um, And so I think that's something I would just say is really protect your own integrity of your learning curve and don't let it be kind of usurped by another person's opinions. Because so many times later on down the line, I can't tell you the amount of times I hear people go, oh my God, I can't believe I told that to that actor. How so stupid of me. And that actor is probably now still struggling because of that and has no idea that the person had this huge epiphany that they should never have said that. So I think it's really important to own your own integrity as an artist, no matter what scenario. Um, obviously, you know, there's the professionalism of working with your fellow actors and your directors, and it's collaborative, and you have to be malleable in that way and be directable. But you also, I think in an instruction scenario, you can't just throw your own integrity away and your own perception and your own learning curve. Good advice. Thank you. The sitcom format isn't particularly huge in Australia. We're sort of known for our fine actors, but yeah, it's not a big part of our film and TV culture here. I really enjoyed going to the studio when you were recording Dharma and Greg, and I was kind of amazed because with that studio audience, it was, you know, you'd get maybe a couple of takes. It was a little like you're a stand-up comedian with a script, like you just had to roll with it what I liked about watching you is you weren't, though it was a funny show, it was a comedy, you weren't always trying to land the funny lines. You were just being the character and the comedy came from those situations and it was a great script. But can you give us some insights into how you made it work? Yeah, you know, it's the crazy part is the I had done a sitcom right before, which was the first one I had ever done. And that was the first pilot season I had ever had. It was a show called Townies with Lauren Graham, Molly Ringwald, Bill Burr, the comedian. Um, I didn't even know I had any particular ability in comedy. I just treated that audition as a character role. And I guess I naturally had a sense of the absurd, but I didn't know it at the time. And so that just sort of, you know, filled in the blanks on the comedy, you know, requirements. And then, I don't know, I just had fun playing that character and I got noticed. And it was kind of like, ooh, who's this person who's so good at comedy? And and 20th Century Fox called and nabbed me and gave me a development deal. And from that, they said, here's the list of writers we have deals with. Pick whoever you want to create a show for you. I was like, okay. And then I, from that came Dharma and Greg, which was created for me. Um, 
but I didn't know I was good at comedy. I didn't think anything of it. And I think that's a huge, a hugely successful part of my success in comedy is I don't consider I'm doing a comedy when I'm doing it, which means I give no attention, never have to the punchlines or where they are. I don't care where the punchlines are. And you also can't be self-aware that you're doing a comedy when you're doing a comedy because what happens is when you get the laugh, you'll be, you'll, it'll show on your face how pleased you are with yourself. And then it ain't funny because you're not the character. You're the actor going like, <laughs> you can see it on people. You can see it on, on actors who aren't being a character. They're, anyway, um, so I never, ever gave any attention to the punchlines. I think I understood the character. Always it was just character first. And finding why that character is a problem for others, is not like everybody else, differs in the opinion, and leaning into that so that you really are showing, you know, the audience can understand the more you're that character. And you, if you really understand like the differences between the characters and why one may be a problem for the other, you lean into the thing that creates the problem and hence the comedy can come. I think also something comedy wise that I always do. And I don't, I haven't seen this discussed much amongst people who do comedy. I was asked a lot about this and I had to like, really like sort of analyze myself on it. I had to like kind of go through when I'm doing a comedy or a comedic moment. What is that moment that leads to me getting the laugh besides the writing? Um, you can have a good writing, but if the execution is poor, it's not going to land with an explosive laugh. You know, it's obviously the performer is the singer of that piece of writing. And I always, and this is a really specific nuance thing for comedy. Now I said, I don't care where the punchlines are, but I do understand the rhythm of comedy. I always would sort of mislead the audience right before where I knew what I cared about was the misdirect before the punchline so that when the punchline came, it caught them off guard because they were following me on a left turn before I turned right and the right turn they weren't expecting. And then that's what would make them laugh. And it is nothing I actually thought about or like worked on my script. I think I just innately, that's how I do my comedy. But I would sort of know the ha 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 was coming on line B. So on line A, I didn't anticipate or highlight that B was coming. I would turn the other way with my rhythm and intention or shift their attention by where I put my attention so that they didn't see B coming. And that's a very highfalutin way of describing something. And I hope it makes sense. But I love that. Thank you. That was an awesome answer. I actually watched Townies, the first show you got. I'd never seen it. And I actually watched the pilot episode last week. Wow. And yeah, I was like, wow, okay. I can see where your character, your comedy style and what you wound up doing with Dharma, I see where it came from. And it was, it was a standout performance. So I can see why you got noticed. Good job, Jenna. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> so to go from that world of Dharma and Greg, let's go to present time with fear the walking dead now when you first joined the series three i don't know series four i think it was i said to kate oh come on we got to watch jenna in, in her new show and we sort of watched an episode and kate's like i'm so sorry i can't watch zombie shows 
they just scare the hell out of me. I can't sleep. It's like, <laughs> so I was like, as much as I love Jenna and she's brilliant, and I'm like, okay, I really, <laughs> I, I really want to watch this. And um, so I've watched a few episodes over the years, but I haven't really watched the whole series other than just over the last couple of weeks. I've crammed and watched a whole bunch of them and kind of researched the whole area. And oh my God, the fans, I mean, it's like a Star Trek kind of series, isn't it? The fans are mm. very, very passionate. It's an incredible show. The writing, the acting, the cinematography, everything is absolutely superb. And I'm totally hooked. So I'm now like going off to the room at night. Kate's kind of watching, you know, another Merchant Ivory film for the 20th time over here. <laughs> and, and I'm in the other room watching zombies go at it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's an incredible show. So tell us, I mean, you know, it's like having an ocean liner, isn't it? Doing sitcoms as an actor and then shifting perception to a point where you're getting offered really intense, in a way, dark, dramatic roles. Can you give us an insight into how you managed that? Yeah, that had its own learning curve. So when they offered me the show of Fear the Walking Dead, I was thrilled because I was like, this is exactly what I want to be doing right now. And Scott Gimple, who is like the head of The Walking Dead, sort of universe um and all the shows in it we did a skype call and he was walking me through my character and saying she was a trauma nurse you know pre-apocalypse she had a daughter and a husband who both died in the apocalypse when it all fell then walked me through the guilt and the involvement of how her daughter died and and everything and how the trauma she was experiencing and i was like oh my god that sounds amazing that's like totally what i was craving to do but it was completely intimidating because number one, I was like, are people going to accept me in this? Because I am known for comedy on the main um, and it's a huge fandom and I knew I could do it, but I also knew I had to also prove it to myself that I could do it. I mean, this is very personal, but like the first weekend leading into my starting filming the show, I did not leave the hotel room. And I just worked on the script, which is no big deal, but I took makeup and I like put dirt on my face and had to like put myself in this sort of pseudo apocalypse broken place and dirty myself and prove it to myself in my hotel room that I was ready to portray this character. And it, you know, I got called like, Hey, we're having like a cast dinner so everyone can meet each other. Cause there's some new cast members you want to join? I was like, no, I don't want to leave my room. Like, I just want to like really get this. And I also watched all seasons of both shows, The Walking Dead and Fear of the Walking Dead, which at the time, collectively, I think it was like 11 seasons of television. I watched every episode because I knew this was, number one, there's a mythology to the show, um, to the genre. There's a genre factor, and then there's also a mythology to this universe. And there's a fandom that is gigantic and i wanted to honor it because i'm newly stepping into something that people have been participating in for years and if i want them to welcome me into this character and have them believe in me as the character and give their hearts to me as this character i have to kind of absorb this thing that we're all living in so i really committed to to all of that and and i had to prove it to myself and there was a learning curve to go on and there still is like, I'm still, as they're evolving my character, like the amount of hours I spend working on my script, like I'll do, I mean, minimally 12 hours before my first day of filming 
and I'll film all day. I'll work on the next day's stuff while I'm at work. And then I go home and spend three more hours on just those scenes for the next day, every night. And I found that's what it takes for me to track the nuance of how they write these scripts. And there's so much that happens not in the scripts that affects the characters changing and how they affect each other. It requires a lot of paying attention. And so that you're, you know, as an actor, there's many choices you can make on how to play a scene, of course. And many of them would be valid, perfectly fine. But just believability is not what we're going for here because there is so much nuance to, they, they do a lot of themes and how characters have affected uh, one character a certain way, then that character goes on to affect another character in a similar way. And you have to like know what all that is. So that also affects and modulates which choice I'm going to make as an actor and how I'm sort of using the equalizing board of what's important at any given time to move that story forward in the way that they happen to be telling it, as opposed to any other script, which, you know, each project has its own DNA in that way. It's an incredible show, and particularly this season where your character's gone and some of the things I'd love to talk about, but I won't spoil it for people, but some of the things that have transpired in this season are jaw-dropping. It's, it's really, really powerful stuff. I've checked out, you know, sort of some of the fan sites and all of that, and clearly you're a fan favourite. That must be really satisfying. Well, it's a relief because when, <laughs> when they hate you, it hurts a lot, um, you know, but or some, there's a really lovely sort of fan manners, I suppose you could call it, where, um, you know, the kind fans are sort of do campaigns of like hate the character, love the actor so that people are taking these like emotional vendettas out on the actors just because of something that's written for them as the character that they have no control over. You know, like there was a the 11-year-old actress whose character killed one of the main characters. And this actress was getting death threats on social media oh, at no. 11 years old for something her character did. Oh, no. That she clearly had no control. I, I mean, it doesn't even matter. It's a character. It's make-believe. Yeah. So um, I've really noticed a sort of trend happening in the fandom, which I really appreciate, which is, you know, hate the character, love the actor. And just so that people use a little self-discipline in their responses, because it is such a passionate fandom, which is awesome. Mm. Um, it's just they have to also, have, you know, like everybody, have some manners with their passion. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So working with the, the directors and the writers and the producers on this show, obviously everyone has their own approach and every actor, you know, has a different key to getting the best out of them. For you, what are some of the, the pet hates um, and the things you love from directors and, and producers? Um, I love being directed. So I am very open to that experience. I clearly cannot be outside myself directing myself i can do all of my work to make sure i really understand the story and absorb all of that and really understand what's happening so that then the director can then take my performance to the next level um it's varied especially in television you know you have a different director every episode so I've gone on an entire episode with not a single performance note. And I kept begging. <laughs> I was like, please, is there, you want me to play this a different way? Like, I'm going to try it this way. So yeah, great. Okay. And, and it was like torture for me because I really love to be directed. Um, but the episode turned out great. And maybe he just trusted what I was doing and it all was fine. 
Um, and then there's sometimes where I'll like, like I said about calibrating which choice to make when, and I'll like maybe make a choice that isn't the optimum one for this section of the story. Though believable and fine as an individual actor, the need of this other emotion is going to push the story forward in a way that they need. Um, and so I like being directed by intent. Like you really want to convince him blah, or you really don't want to play. You'll do anything to not have this scene as a human or, um, you know, intent. I can sort of find how to express that. I've had a feature director <laughs> one time stand very close to me and just say my lines back to me like this close to my face. And I would back up so I could not be cross-eyed and see him and he'd like pull me closer and he was like shoving he was like introverting me on purpose to get that kind of reaction out of my character during the scene and i that i did not dig because it took my self-determinism away to accomplish what he wanted to if he had just said i want you to do this scene but where the entire room is a blur and you have no focus and you kind of can only see about an inch in front of your face and and how that changes your heart rate and makes you almost have a panic attack. Do the scene like that. Then I would have the opportunity to express that on my own, you know? Um, but in terms of like the show, you get all kinds of things, but I think I like intent direction that gives me a goal, like something I'm trying to accomplish or stop or get to, or get away from, or feel nothing. I had a great piece of direction from Michael Satrazimis, which is our producing director, in my first scene on camera for this character on Fear of the Walking Dead. And he said, you might be hallucinating. You might be hallucinating. You're not sure. And that was the most awesome piece of directing I, I've gotten. It, it, it really... Um, permitted me to be so off kilter. I don't know. It just really was great direction. So that kind of stuff, I really, really do well with. That's cool. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. Tell mm -hmm. us about Damages. You did a season of Damages with Glenn Close and Rose Byrne, and that was a really powerful series as well. Um, tell us how that experience was. It was intimidating. Um, working with Glenn Close and it was, you know, the style of that writing was almost noir in a way. And so that was like its own genre, which was very new to me and how to serve making acting choices that have all of these layers and within the, the lines that I had, which, and within a noir kind of, scope I found really challenging. Um, I feel like if I was given that opportunity today, I would do it a lot better, but it was like my first time doing like some heavy drama in the midst of doing comedy and with Glenn Close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, I think I had like the worst headache at the end of my first day with her because I was so intimidated and so overwhelmed and so in awe. <laughs> Um, and I felt like I had a lot to learn in a short amount of time, but it was, it was incredible to do. Um, and I did learn a lot from that, but, um, I think I just couldn't quite believe that I was there. And, you know, that was like with Fear of the Walking Dead, I had to convince myself, you know, that I could do it. And you do, these are very personal things. And this has to do with confidence and experience and 
I don't think actors of note open up very much about those vulnerable moments when you feel you're like, oh my God, can I do this? Then you go, well, they hired you. You should be able to do it. They have faith in you. You should have faith in yourself. But if you have never done something a certain way before, you you don't have that as a reference point for yourself. And you kind of have to go on that learning curve real quick, you know? Absolutely. Talking of faith, there, uh, there's been a few high-profile movies, Keeping the Faith with Ed Norton and Ben Stiller, Ed TV with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Yeah. So, you know, it was really cool to be working with Ron Howard because I'd been a huge fan and I just felt like, okay, I'm in very good hands. Um, Matthew was a dream to work with. And I really had a handle on the character that I was doing. I'd really, uh, I had a point of view about what I wanted to do and about where she was at mentally and what she could tolerate and what she could not tolerate. And Woody Harrelson's a legend and I love him and he's super fun to work with. So like they were all such affable, cool guys that it was, it was really fun and it made it less scary just because they were so friendly and easy to be around, you know, and not all super serious or taking themselves seriously at all. I mean, Woody is like the most non-serious person I've ever met. And, um, and same with Matthew. And, um, and then I felt confident in comedy. I didn't have a doubt about myself there. I just knew I could handle myself with those people. I, I just don't ever doubt myself when I'm doing comedy, really. I think the only time I doubt myself when I'm doing comedy is if the writing feels wrong or off or something's not right, then you're just that square peg in a round hole feeling drives me crazy. And I don't always know how to solve it because I'm not a writer, but I do have instincts about things. But that was really a fun job. And I wish I'd had more scenes with Woody too, just because he's so genius but it was really fun. And then keeping the faith, you know, that was its own brand of experience. And the rehearsal process, uh, Edward Norton directed it in his first time directing. And he had just come from working with Fincher. And, you know, there was times where I would sort of help him. And there was times where he would help me. But again, comedically, I knew what I was doing and I didn't doubt myself. And I, I felt very oriented because Edward would do a lot of takes because he's a perfectionist and that's all well and great. It's just sometimes with comedy, like when you've got it and you've hit that apex and you can feel you've hit it, like you're done. You know what I mean? You don't have to like grind at it. Like comedy for me is not something to grind at. Like when you've got that spark and that, that buoyancy happens in a take, you're like, you're good. And I remember when he was editing, he called me once and go, I just want you to know, like in almost every scene I'm using your first or second take. So I just want to acknowledge you <laughs> for getting it right pretty much, you know, and this is not like a brag about me, but it was just a, cause he would sometimes do 30 takes, you know, of oh, something. And, oh, and so then as the actor, you start going like, am I not giving him what he wants? Do you know what I mean? Like, am I, and it was just, he wanted to play it a million different ways. And that was all fine. I love, I loved that. But, um, you could start to doubt yourself and especially I had great admiration for Edward. So then I started going, Oh, Am I not? Oh, maybe he knows more than I do on what we're doing because he's such a genius, you know, and I started doubting my own ability. So it was, he was trying to reassure me that my contribution <laughs> to those first couple of takes was valid. I actually really enjoyed the film and back on Ed TV, I mean, it just, it blew me away how prescient that film was for what's played out in the world of reality oh TV and Unreal and, you know, oh. The Bachelor and all of these shows. Yeah, it's kind of scary, actually. It was, um, there wasn't the reality show frenzy. It was just, just breaking the 
the cresting the mountain yeah. um, at that time. And it was funny when it came out, a lot of people thought that Truman show Truman show came out right before a TV. And I think the marketing must've gone awry because they felt like they didn't feel the need to see Ed TV. Cause I thought it was basically the same thing, which it completely is not totally different um, tone. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing what reality shows have become and yeah. what has happened uh, to our world in that way. And Ed TV was just sort of capturing that first little baby homeopathic dose of um, <laughs> reality show concepts. You're absolutely right. Hey, tell me about Friends with Benefits with um, Justin Timberlake. How was that? That was fun. Uh, I played his sister and uh, he and Mila Kunis had like, you know, great chemistry. I had just had my second kid. And so I was going out doing comedy and then running back to my trailer to pump my boobs. <laughs> so I was like a little bit um, split brained at that time. Um, but it was a, it was a fun thing to go do. And he's, he, he's so talented. Like, he can sing, he can dance, he can act, but he well, he is very uh, a funny actor. He's good, so it was really easy to act with him. It was like nothing because he's really great. That's cool. Good time to talk about motherhood. You're an awesome mum. I've seen you in action, and your two boys are wonderful. Tell us about how being a mum has changed you, and I imagine improved you as an actor, as a person. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it really connected me to the concept of future. I, I just remember after I had my first kid, like having this new kind of perception about future and the concept of future and what that really means. And then that informs so much and gives added value to so many other experiences in life that you maybe would just kind of ignore or not value or just think it's a one-off. And it, it also kind of brought out this lioness in me. I don't know. I, I love being a mother. I am. I always felt like I I knew what to do as a mother. Uh, I know what the importances are. What the I don't know. And my mom was just such a great mom, and she babysat all the time other kids. So I was always with babies and kids and babysitting. So I had a lot of experience like in that area. Uh, I love being a mom, but it really brought out a tiger lioness situation in me, and um, it made me a fighter and um, not like with my husband, but that too. But um, it made me like a warrior for rights and children. And I always hated bullies as a child. Like I remember punching out a kid on the schoolyard because he was bullying someone really badly and I punched him out. <laughs> and I didn't get in trouble because the, the teacher came over and was like, what happened? And I explained it. And she was like, oh, good job. <laughs> So um, I've always had an aversion to bullies. I really, really, really have a strong distaste for bullies. And I won't tolerate it at all if it comes into my vicinity. Like, unapologetically won't tolerate it. And um, I think having children just like concreted that in a really dramatic way. And you really see the sensitivity of humanity. And you see how sensitive everybody is in a lovely, sweet way. And how there's a vulnerability to human beings and there is a sweetness there and there's chaos there but there's a sweetness fighting the chaos and becoming a mother really really highlighted that for me uh, and it just changed that in me and I really care a lot about people feeling like they can find themselves and become themselves and be okay to be who they are that's really important to me I think motherhood really did that <laughs> that's beautiful 
Wow. That's very moving. <laughs> I'm thinking of a similar thing I've observed in Kate since she became a mum and lioness comes to mind there too. You're both growing older gracefully with strength and um, it's a beautiful thing. Let's talk about your amazing husband, Bodhi, and your 30 years together and blazing the podcast trail with Kicking and Screaming, your podcast. Yes. So, you know, we have been together for a long time. And so we always have people go, how do you do it? And we were like kicking and screaming. And we've always been, you know, best friends, but very different. And it creates sparks. And we both have a sense of humor. And so we have sparks within our humor. And uh, we thought it'd be fun to do a TV show, a scripted show. But then I kept like having these other sitcoms that I was working on. And so Bodhi had the idea like, well, you know, I Love Lucy started as a radio show. And let's just do a podcast. Let's just talk about the area and the subject matter. And we'll build basically a library for writers for when we do the scripted show. And we never really like intended it to become its own thing. And then I remember being on um, some talk shows promoting whatever show I was doing at the time. And I talked about this area. I, we're, you know, we're pretty R-rated in our podcast. It's pretty vulgar. And we talk straight up about marriage and all of its parts. And I kind of dipped my toe into that territory comedically on like Conan or something. And people like lost their shit. They were laughing so hard. And so was Conan. It was a really fun riff. And I was like, oh, there might be something to this. And, uh, and so people just started becoming fans of the podcast and that's kind of how it's become. And we just talk about our own relationship. We don't sit there giving advice or anything. We just, I think there's part of it where people say to us, you know, I realize that you're going through the same thing I'm going through and it made mine feel like not so bad and that I can get through it. And you guys just talk it through. It's not like divorce material. They felt like there's things they were encountering in their own marriage that were like divorce worthy. And they were seeing us just kind of talk our way through it and laugh about it with some good satisfying insults along the way. And it either <laughs> they think we're so insane that it makes them feel better about their own relationship or they kind of go, oh, you can talk about that. You can say that to your spouse. Wow. Okay. Maybe I can talk to my spouse too. So I don't know, maybe it helps people. Um, that'd be cool. If not, it's just entertaining and people find things in common with us. And I think we just state that which others only think they can think um, and not say out loud. And we say it out loud and no one falls over dead. Everyone survives. And maybe we even have a good laugh. And then I think I have gotten a lot nicer to him from doing the podcast because I saw what a bitch I was. And I'm trying to be less of a bitch. Because <laughs> I am very, I am very opinionated. I really am a feminist and I am not good at being like a beta. I'm an alpha. And, um, you know, you have an alpha wife too. Like you have a very passionate, I think Kate though is better at being a little bit more graceful than I am. I'm, I'd like have not found that grace yet. I'm working on it. But I'm quite spunky in the relationship and Bodhi is just has to deal and he's just so good at dealing. It's amazing. <laughs> it is very, very entertaining. And I mean, Kate and I have watched some apps. If I tried talking to her some of the way or, and vice versa, the way you guys talk to each other, we'd last about five minutes. She'd be in tears instantly and we'd just be. <laughs> I know. I'm, I know. It's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think people think these things. 
Yeah. So someone's got to say it out loud and see that like, well, if you think it, you don't have to say it, but if you do, it's not like someone's going to drop dead. It's like, it's okay. You know, cause the other person's thinking it too. Yeah. No, I think it's awesome that you have the courage to talk about these things, have a laugh, get through it. I mean, it's incredible. It's worth watching. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> uh, you know, Kate and I have been together 30 years as well. We've both racked up 30 years. How outrageous is that? Who would have thunk? It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I mean, I really, I, I do. I am totally not humble on this subject because I have put in the blood, sweat and tears to make it to 30 years. I am not like, oh, well, thanks. Yeah, we're so lucky. No, we fought and worked our ass off to make it 30 years. It doesn't happen very often. And you know, you it is tumultuous and yeah. amazing and beautiful and torturous and exciting and painful and exhilarating and triumphant when you when you grow together, when you increase your understanding of each other by just pushing through the communication as hard and painful as it is it is the only way to get through these problems and you can do it you just you know start to communicate and allow each other to communicate and just listen as fucking hard as it is you have to just shut your mouth and you just have to listen and let the person get it out knowing you damn well have equally similar shit going on and um and that's i think how you just get through it just try and keep your agreements and don't cheat on each other and communicate your way through it that's very cool. Bodie's an extraordinary actor and talent in his own right. You guys really have been an incredible team and success story. You're definitely the dynamic duo. What's he up to at the moment? Has he got more film and TV coming our way? He's writing. Uh, he was paid to write a feature and he just finished that. And he also um, helped someone write their book. And so he's enjoying writing. He's really great. I like being his little editor. Um, and, uh, and he's writing a scripted show for us. And that's really fun too. Fantastic. I know your series Fear the Walking Dead. I believe it's been picked up for another season. Are you going to be the boss lady on the series at some point in the future or your lips are sealed? My lips are so sealed. I can't say a thing. And okay, Anything else coming up for you that we should be looking out for? Um, it's pretty full time and homeschooling my boys is like what I do when I'm not filming. I'm homeschooling them myself. So it's like my bandwidth is at full capacity. Wow, that's intense. I guess um, a lot of people are in the same boat since COVID hit, aren't they? Yeah. Wow. Full responsibility, that sounds like. No, that's, that's <laughs> intense. Yeah, we did it for a while last year and it was. It was full on. Mm -hmm. Look, we're about to wrap up. I could chat and look at that lovely face all day, but I should wrap this up. One of the fun memories that came to mind, one of my fondest memories of when we were living with you was you and Kate sitting on your balcony with your laptops doing the Mavis Beacon learn to type software. <laughs> so I was like, it was sunset and here's this, you know, here's Kate Sobrano, this, you know, superstar singer and here's Jenna Elfman, star from Dharma and Greg. And they're out there with a cup of tea, with the blankie over their knees, doing a learning to type program. And I just thought that's just gold. That's the living the Hollywood dream. Uh, you know, we're like little playmates. We're like little girls. And um, that's how I always feel when I'm with her. I just, you know... It's the same thing when I talk about Bodhi as when I talk about Kate. 
the love is so much that I kind of don't even know how to express it. Like I get a little like overwhelmed. I can't even begin to explain how deep my love for Kate is and my appreciation that I have her in my life. My biggest, biggest dream is to, and Bodhi talks about it all the time, is when I, you know, there's a couple goals I have. And when I accomplish them, he's like, I'm sending you to Kate. And we've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah. Like you're going to go just have time with Kate. And that's, that is the biggest reward. And I am just dying to get to her. I miss her so much. And it made me so happy to see her and my other bestie, Mika. It's like a dream I've had for so long is to yeah. see Mika and Kate sing together. Just when you guys FaceTimed me the other night and I was like, to see both of them, all of us FaceTiming together and they were yeah. in the same room together and then they were like recording together yeah. and performing together. It's like a dream come true. So I hope I get over there while Nick is still there and we can all hang. Yeah. How powerful is that song, the real thing that they, they delivered? Wow. I mean, like, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Incredible. Well, Jenna, thank you for your art. Thank you for your entertainment and thank you for being our friend. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for having me. It's so good to catch up with you. I can't wait to hug you. Thanks, Jenna. Okay. Bye. That's it for another episode. Jenna certainly didn't disappoint, did she? Great actors do make it look easy, but to sustain a successful career across different genres, to age gracefully in the process, and navigate the highs and lows of life in Hollywood, well, it takes great strength. For all things Jenna, head to her website, jennaelfman.com. She's on Instagram and Facebook, Jenna Elfman. If you haven't seen Fear the Walking Dead, then head to Foxtel in Australia for the latest season. I think it's also on SBS Network for the first few series. If you enjoyed the episode, share on your socials and tell your friends. Until next time, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.